we'll read verses 27 through verse 39. Actually, we'll back up one verse, verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And I pray that you would teach our hearts how to tremble at your word how to love it, how to live it, uh, how to, with David, say, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all of the day. I pray that you would quicken this, your word, to each of our hearts, that you would be glorified in the responses of our hearts as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. may be seated. Well, this is my uh, third sermon on Matthew chapter 10, at least in the series on evangelism by non-experts. And before I dig into the uh, passage, I want to review what we looked at uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, since I haven't been with you. Uh, We looked at the fact that there is a cost involved in witnessing. In fact, the cost is significant enough. Some people think, you know, why even bother witnessing? That's a, a difficult thing to do. Uh, People get mad at us, they'll slam the doors in our face, they'll do other things. But one of the things that we saw is that Christians cannot avoid the cost. All Christians are called to bear this cost. In this chapter, Jesus is sending some of his disciples to their death. Uh, He is sending other disciples to prison and to be scourged, and others to be hated and to be betrayed uh, uh, by even their relatives. And yet, even if you were able to avoid all of that persecution, he still says you have your flesh to deal with. And he says every Christian has to pick up his cross, daily deny himself, and follow after Christ. There is no one, even if you escape persecution, there is no one who's going to be able to escape the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, what kind of marketing is that? (laughs) Uh, Why would a person be willing to deny himself of what he naturally wants? And uh, we'll look next week at some of the perks that make this cost well worthwhile. But we saw uh, two weeks ago that even the vision that was cast before the eyes of the disciples made it worthwhile uh, to them. 
they saw that there was really no cost that was too great for them to be pursuing after. And the greater the vision, the greater the cost. Uh, God has made us as creatures, even on the natural level, to be people of vision. Uh, This is true uh, in many different areas of life. You can think of the uh, war for independence. What is it that made our founding fathers of this nation willing to sacrifice their lives and their fortunes in order to uh, obtain some kind of uh, you know, political liter- liberty in this country? Well, I believe it was because they had a vision of what uh, spiritual liberty and what political liberty could do for this country. And they said that they would rather die than see their children growing up uh, under the bondage of humanism and, and tyranny. They were driven by a vision. And one of the reasons that many Christians in our country are not willing to deny themselves sacrificially is I believe that they don't really see that there's anything worth sacrificing for. And in one sense, I don't blame them because the church has not cast a vision before their eyes uh, uh, that the Scripture lays out. Scripture says, for lack of vision, the people perish. The Word of God has not shaped, for example, their political vision. And uh, so they aren't willing to take the sacrifices necessary to restore liberty to America. There's no cultural vision, as it were. Uh, Likewise, the Word of God does not shape what they think of a family in terms of covenantal succession, and so they're not willing to make the kind of sacrifices to achieve for their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren what the Scripture says we need to be casting into their lives. And so instead, they do what you see, I saw on a bumper sticker anyway, says, I'm spending my children's inheritance. Uh, Rather than sacrificing, they, they have no vision for the future. And I believe that the church of Jesus Christ lacks the vision of what God says the church should be about. Well, sure, there's things that we come to church to do. They see it as a place where there's activities. You come to worship God and to sing, and maybe there's some entertainment and a little bit of education, although there is a paltry little education going on uh, in the church of Jesus Christ. But I really do not think that many people have been gripped by a vision of we need to be committed to the church come hell or high water. Uh, They don't have that kind of a vision for their families either. That's why so many divorces going on. The vision we have is a truncated vision that means that there's going to be a truncated willingness to sacrifice uh, for that vision. Uh, The reason Christ could call for any sacrifice in the realm of witnessing for these disciples was that they were convinced that what they were fighting for, what they were promoting is something worth dying for. They could not bear the thought that this vision would be defeated in human history. And our generation, I think, needs to recapture a vision that Christ has set before us of, uh, of recapturing every area of life and culture and bringing it under the feet of King Jesus. No square inch of planet Earth exempted from it. Uh, the truncated vision of the 21st century church has brought about a truncated willingness to sacrifice. And it's brought about a truncated gospel. You know, uh, a lot of people, their idea of the gospel is um, just how to get a free ticket to heaven. Now, that's involved. Obviously, we're going to have a ticket to heaven, right? But Matthew uh, 9, verse 35, when he first sends them out preaching, what is he sending them out to preach? It's the gospel of the kingdom. 
That's what Jesus preached. It's a gospel of the kingdom. It is a pervasive, all-encompassing gospel. This is what the Great Commission was all about. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded them. Uh, and lo, I am with you always, baptizing the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So here we have the universal claim of Christ's authority. It's not just authority in heaven. It's authority over every sphere, every part of human life on earth. And it is a, it is a commission to bring this authority over every nation, Christianizing every nation. It's a, it's a, it's a command to bring every aspect of the Word of God to bear upon life, and it's a promise that His presence is with us to the end of the age, all the days, literally. There's four alls there that I think have been missing in many people's message. And so, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the cost and the vision. we got to make sure we do not have an insipid vision that is an insult to the majesty of Christ's goals. Today, I want to answer the question of who can be used by Christ to achieve this grand vision. We might think, yeah, it's a great vision, but I'm not great. I'm a lousy witness. I can't possibly be engaged in this, in this uh, commission that Christ has sent forward. We might think like Moses, I can't talk too good. Uh, we might uh, think like these disciples, you know, I'm, I'm not a person who has any influence. Uh, people despise us. They don't look uh, uh, well upon us. They look down upon us. We're Galileans. They mock the Galileans. You know, they were, they were country hicks. They were rednecks. They can't talk so good is what they said about them. And yet God used them to turn the world upside down. And... Um, What uh, we're going to look at this morning is who can God use as a witness? Can he use a fearful person like me? And God says, absolutely, he can use any of us so long as we are sold out for the vision that Christ has set before us, sold out for the cause of Christ. You don't have to be powerful to be a witness. All you have to be is in submission to the king who is all-powerful. You don't have to be wealthy all you have to do is submit to the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, okay? So it's not about who we are. It's about who Christ is. You don't need to be an expert witness. Uh, we need to be in submission to the God who witnesses through us. You see, there's the outward call of the gospel, and then there's the inward call that God does. There's the outward witness. We're going to be seeing God is the witness who witnesses through us. And so all we're doing is we're just aligning ourselves with the flow of His power and uh, being willing to step into the Jordan, as it were. Now, uh, I want you in that light to view point A. Point A says the command to put off fear. You need to be bold to speak the truth. Now, if I'd started with that, people would say, well, that's the problem. That rules me out because I'm not bold. Okay, so just go on to somebody else. But these disciples were not bold either. They were chicken-hearted in many ways, just like some of us are in the area of commanding. That's why over and over again he says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Okay, let's look at a few of those. Verse 26, therefore do not fear them. Look at verse 28, do not fear those who can kill the body. Verse 31, do not fear therefore. Why does he say that? Well, he's already set before them the cost, and that cost can make you a little bit nervous about going into this task. 
And so they feared just like many of us fear as well. And what Jesus does in these verses that we have read is he gives us seven antidotes to the fear of witnessing. Seven antidotes to the fear of witnessing. Now you could go to other scriptures that deal with other facets of conquering fear. I'm just going to focus on what Jesus gave to these disciples to help them conquer the fear of witnessing. First, trust God's work and witness. Convicting people is God's work, and God will convict men either in history or on judgment day. Verse 26, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Notice how universal this is. There is nothing covered that will not be made known. And the important point is not the timing, because we don't know who's elect and who is not elect. That's in God's hands. Non-elect, they're going to be convicted on the day of judgment. But the important point for us, as we're going out, since we don't know who's elect and who is non-elect, is that, that uh, God's work of conviction is a powerful work, and it will always be achieved. When it's time for people to be convicted by God's Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter how lousy you are as a witness, God's going to take your weakness and His strength is going to be made perfect. He's going to bring their hearts and they will not be able to escape from God's searching gaze. It doesn't matter how resistant they are, God will be uh, successful. And so our outward call is accompanied by God's inward call. Our outward witness is accompanied by God's powerful witness. Trust his conviction. Trust his witness in his call. Now, the second point is that, okay, you've got to trust in God's work, but trust without action is not true faith. James says it's a dead faith. It's a counterfeit faith. There's always got to be action. Read Hebrews 11, the great chapter on faith, and I challenge you to find one verse that does not show faith resulting in something, some kind of action. It always produces uh, action. And uh, so we have to step out in action. In the obedience of faith, we start to follow the Lord. And people say, well, that's the problem. I can't do it. Uh, I'm too fearful. I'm too chicken-hearted to be able to do this because I know people hate to hear the truth. And when I'm bringing it, there's going to be conflict. And it's that very conflict that makes me nervous about this. Well, Christ knew that when he gave verse 27. After saying, don't fear them because my work is the work of conviction... He goes on in verse 27 and he says, in light of the fact I am pressing home to their hearts the claims of truth, I want you to start talking. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Don't keep it secret. Okay, God's revealed fabulous truths to you in the the darkened room of your bedroom, you know, in your devotions. That's not going to do unbelievers any good. He's saying, I want you to take the truths of the Scriptures and put them into every sphere of life. I want you to take them out there. And it's in the act of obedience that fear is often conquered. Now, this may seem counterintuitive, but let me give you three illustrations that maybe will help you to understand this. And for the first one, I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. This is a place where Peter was fearful (coughs) <coughs> and, uh, <coughs> and any of us can have those old fears resurrected. We could be bold for maybe a year, and we get into a situation with our family, or we get into a situation with somebody else, and all of a sudden those old fears start coming up again. That's what happened with Peter. Uh, you could be bold in preaching, 
and then be fearful in witnessing. Or you could be bold in witnessing, fearful in preaching, or fearful with your wife or your husband. And this is sort of what happens here. Okay, Galatians uh, 2, and let's begin reading at verse 11. But when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So fear kept Peter from boldly telling the truth and living it out. Continuing on, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, and then Paul proceeds to confront Peter. Now, what gave Paul boldness when Peter at this point lacked that boldness? It wasn't because Paul was bold in himself. He said when he came, he came in weakness and in, in fear and trembling. Well, he tells us several things in, in Galatians that gave, us, gave him this boldness. First of all, he said how he transitioned from finding his sense of approval from men to finding his sense of approval from God. Then he went on and he mentioned that he is absolutely convinced of God's love for him. He mentions God's sovereign control over all circumstances. But I want to just hone in on the point that Jesus makes, stepping out in faith and trusting God's Spirit to come through. Turn with me to Galatians 3. He says here that not one iota of the Christian life can be lived out in our own strength. Uh, basically, you know, he's, he knows he's not bold. He's not anything that is right apart from God's strength. But he says, O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh or by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? See, when we say, I'm not good enough to be a witness, we are implying that witnessing can be done by the works of the law. Okay? Uh, we're implying that receiving God's power by faith is not enough. When we say, I have to become more bold, and then I will begin to witness, we've got it all backwards. That implies that boldness can be achieved apart from faith. Everything in the Christian walk is received by faith. And so Paul said the same thing. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. So where did he get his boldness? He says, by faith, he stood out and he did the right thing. He spoke the word of God to them, even though he did it with fear and trembling, and God's boldness took over uh, in his life. Uh, the boldness is wrought by faith. It's faith that acts. A couple of other illustrations. You got a picture of the priests crossing the Jordan River. So who parted the river? Was it the priests? Or was it God? Well, obviously, the priests by themselves don't have the power to part that river, but God ordained that river was not going to be parted until they got their feet wet by touching the river. Okay, They had to step out, as it were, in the obedience of faith before God would come through. And Matthew 26, I think God is in effect saying the same thing. Verse 26, he says, 
look, I'll part the way for you. I'm the one who convicts. I'm the one who's going to be the witness. But in verse 27, he says, I'm going to do it through you, and I want you to step out. I want you to get your feet wet, and as you step out, I'm going to come through into your life. Your problem of fear will not go away so long as you stay in the barracks. Okay? God's boldness takes over in the action of the battlefield. Let me give you one more illustration. When was the man with the withered hand healed? Jesus commanded him, stretch forth your hand. Now, he could have said, well, Lord, that's a silly question. You have to heal it first. Then I'll stretch it forth. But Christ was commanding him to do the impossible. It's very interesting how he set that up. We many times could be like what that man could have been like. We say, Lord, I will witness if you give me boldness first. Okay? Uh, This is an impossible task. I can't go out and witness. Heal my hand first, then I'll stretch it forth. But it was as he willed, and faith is an action, right? As he willed to do the impossible, God came through and God healed his hand. The man didn't heal his own hand, right? But it's, it's by the action of faith that God's power is many times manifested uh, into, uh, into our lives. And I think that's what God is getting at, Christ is getting at in Matthew 10, verses 26 through 27. So the first remedy for fear is trusting God's witness through our witness. The second remedy is the obedience of faith. It's stepping into the Jordan. It's actually doing it. You know, even if it's a bumbling mess that you make when you witness, start doing it. Third remedy for fear is to put all danger into an eternal perspective. Verse 28. Verse 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He's basically saying, don't just look at these present problems. Look at them in light of eternity. Uh, Look at verses 32 through 33. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, what's it going to be like to be confessed before the Father? What's it going to be like, you know, when you're standing there and and Jesus is bringing you before the awesome majesty of God and you're realizing you have no hope, but he says, Father, This man and this woman and this child confessed me before men. I am proud of them. I am not ashamed of them. And a parallel gospel says, you know, you'd be ashamed. He says, receive them into your kingdom. What an awesome thing that that will be in eternity. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3 says, those who are engaged in evangelism and who lead people to righteousness. That's what evangelism is. It's not a free ticket to heaven. It's a, it's, a, it's a conquering. It's bringing us into this pathway to holiness. So it's leading people to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. We need to begin thinking about what goes on from life, the rewards that God will uh, give to us uh, for, forever and ever. I think eternal, uh, you know, maybe a trillion years from now, if we were able to look back on uh, our time on planet Earth, which 
even our whole lifetime is going to be less than a second compared to eternity. And we look back, we'll probably shake our heads that we were unwilling to forego some pleasure, unwilling to make some sacrifices or to face some pain, and we've robbed ourselves of an eternity of rewards. See, we've got to look at life from an eternal perspective. And when God says we can lay up treasures in heaven, He wasn't lying, okay? There are all kinds of things that we can establish for ourselves throughout eternity by the short period of time that we have on earth. Witnessing is part of that laying up of treasures in heaven. And so He says, get an eternal perspective. It'll help grip your heart and stabilize your heart when the fears come. Fourth remedy that Christ gives for the fear of man is also in verse 28. It's the fear of God. Now that one may surprise you. What? I'm putting off one fear and I'm replacing it with another fear? What's going on with that? But over and over in Scripture, you'll find that the fear of man is answered by the fear of God. Uh, In verse 28, it tells us, you know, not to fear those others, fear Him. Fear Him. 278 times the Bible commands us to fear God. And yet Dr. Robert Morey uh, tells us that uh, in his research, almost no churches are preaching on the fear of God. 43 of those references to uh, commands to fear God are in the New Testament. Let me just give you a, a, a tiny smattering from the book of Acts. Uh, why, what gave the church of Acts such boldness to witness? I would say it was the fear of God. Acts 2.43, fear came upon every soul. What's the immediate result? It's witnessing and all kinds of people coming to Christ. It says with boldness they proclaimed the word. Acts 5 verse 11, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. What was the result? Boldness of speech, the multiplication of the church. Acts 9 verse 31 says, And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now I want you to notice in that verse that the fear of God is compatible with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would say the fear of God is absolutely prerequisite to the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But you could go through the book of Acts and you will see that the fear of the Lord is the answer Uh, to the fear of man. The fear of God is one of the most important things you could develop in your Christian walk. John Murray, in a fabulous essay, I think it's in his Romans commentary, uh, says that this, this fear of God is a central feature of Christian piety. Have you ever walked up to the Grand Canyon? How many here have been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, a good chunk of you. When I walked up to the Grand Canyon... I had no idea, based upon the pictures. Pictures look pretty cool. It was nothing like actually standing there. I was just awestruck. I I was absolutely awestruck. I could not help but keep gazing and gazing at the Grand Canyon. Now, that's one aspect of the fear of God. But the closer that I got to the edge of that cliff, the more that that awe and that wonder began to transition into strong feelings of fear. (laughs) In fact, when I got within two feet of the edge of the Grand Canyon, you can bet I was not on my feet. I was on my knees, just like the picture in your bulletin there. That guy's kind of peering over the edge. And when the wind was blowing at all, I couldn't even be on my knees, you know, flat on my face. But I wanted to look over. 
I wanted to see what was on the other side of that. To me, that is a picture of God, a fear of God. It's ordinarily a sensation of awe and wonder that brings us delight, absolute delight. But the closer we get to God, the more that awe and wonder transitions into what Philippians calls fear and trembling, literal trembling that every Christian should experience at some point in their lives. If you've never trembled before God, I can guarantee you, you've not gotten very close to the edge of the Grand Canyon of God's majesty. You've been viewing God from afar. Maybe with uh, wonder uh, and awe, you, you look at all of His attributes. But I tell you, the closer you get in to God, the more that actually transitions into feelings of fear and tremble. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be moving away from God. On the contrary, you're going to be all the more attracted to God. It's just like, you know, the, the, the sense of fear did not make me go away from the edge of that cliff. I was attracted. I wanted to look over. I wanted to see what was there. It does not make you uh, go away and run away from a blazing fire. But you do not trifle with the fire, and you do not trifle with the Grand Canyon. That is why Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now that's the same book, Hebrews, that tells us that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. It says we also need to tremble before him. In fact, Hebrews tells us that Moses came boldly before God, and yet it says, I exceedingly am afraid and tremble. Okay, how can you fit those two together? Well, just think of the Grand Canyon. I think the Grand Canyon shows how those two fit together. Moses was getting close to the edge because he wanted to see more of God's glory. Now, I can't get into this in depth in this sermon. I might preach a whole series on the fear of God at some point. But it is my prayer that every one of you would get a Grand Canyon view of God. I highly recommend this book here by Dr. Morey, uh, Robert Morey. It's entitled Fearing God, The Key to the Treasure House of Heaven. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ would be turned upside down if it would once again begin preaching and begin experiencing the fear of God. I think it would answer almost all of the problems that are plaguing the church uh, of Jesus Christ. Uh, The fear of God, I think, would uh, turn our congregation upside down. Uh, If people would read this book, I think it would be very good. In fact, I personally purchased... Uh, a number of copies of this because I think quite uh, highly of this book. And here's what I'm going to do. I've got some here, and if we run out, I've got more at home. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give this book away free to anybody who will promise me that they will read it in three weeks and write me a small report of what it meant to them. It can be a half-page report. I don't care. But I want you to read it in three weeks and then write a little report, tell me what you think about it. Now, I still want others who can't do it in three weeks to have this, but if you're going to be procrastinating beyond three weeks, uh, what I'll do, this is a $21 book, it says on the back here, I'll give it to you for more than 75% off. For five bucks, 
uh, you, can, you can have this. But I really want you to read it in three weeks, okay? I want you to get into the heart of this book and what it's all about. So you can come up afterwards and, and get that from me. And I'm going to write down in a booklet that you have said you're going to read it in three weeks, okay? <laughs> because you know me. I will forget if it's not in a booklet, okay? <laughs> and uh, so at the end of three weeks, if I don't have my little um, email from you, a uh, little report... Uh, then I'm going to say, okay, cough up the five bucks, guys. But really, this is a much-needed corrective to a false view of the gospel that is all throughout the church. It's even crept into the Reformed, uh, Reformed Church. It's a corrective to false views of family and church and culture. Maury traces the history of the loss of the fear of God from the Puritans to the present, and he points out that when you lose the fear of God, you lose almost everything in Christianity almost everything. The feminized church has fought vigorously against the fear of God, and there is a reason for that. The liberal church has fought vigorously against the fear of God, and it's for the same reason. The self-esteem movement has gotten as far away from the fear of God as it can possibly get. The psychologized church has done so. You know, training on, on what family about has nothing about the fear of God in it. In fact, let me just read you a little little section here from page 95. He says, The fear of the Lord should permeate every aspect of life. No part of our private or public life is to be left untouched by the fear of God. Now, a lot of people think, what? Fear of God in every part of life? Yes, every part of life. And if you don't know why, read this book. Get a copy of this. Brothers and sisters, if you are plagued by insecurity read this book. On the other hand, if you're plagued by pride and arrogance, read this book. If you have the fear of man, read this book. I believe it's a key to turning things around in your lives. And I think in this church, we don't have a huge amount of the fear of God resting in our lives. And so I really, really want to urge it and make it easy for you. It's free, okay? It's free. It's just going to cost you something. But we already saw last week, every Christian has to embrace cost, right? It's going to cost you doing it in three weeks. Now, let me give you just a tiny introduction to the blessings you could have if you would learn to fear God, even in the crass way that Jesus said to fear God to his disciples. When you think about it, this is, this is kind of unusual, at least in terms of modern gospel. Modern gospel says, yeah, there's nothing to fear about God, especially in terms of hell or anything like that. And yet Jesus said to saved, secure children of God, he tells them, very crassly, fear him who was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And he says there's blessing in doing so. Psalm 128 says, Blessed are all who fear the Lord. And it goes on to talk about blessings with your wife, blessings with your children, blessings in your whole household. A whole list of blessings if you'll only fear the Lord. You are robbing yourselves of blessings if you do not know what it is to fear the Lord. Psalm 112, verse 1, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So holiness and fear of the Lord go hand in hand, but he accompanies it with blessing. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 34, 7 through 10, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Would you love to have some of these strong warrior angels 
hanging around your place, knocking off all demons, engaging in spiritual warfare, helping you, protecting you from car accidents? Would you like the angel of the Lord to encamp round about you? He says, you've got to develop the fear of the Lord. Let me keep reading. He says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days. And he goes on to talk about the blessings of literally fearing and trembling before our Almighty God. What kind of a God do you have? Is he a cuddly teddy bear? Or is he like the Grand Canyon or a raging forest fire? What kind of a God do you have? If you sense that you are walking hand in hand with the God who made this universe, why would you fear what men think about you? That's really at the root of fear of witnessing, isn't it? When you are conscious of God's pleasure upon you, the God who made this universe, who blesses you in every way, these people you fear, they can't bless you. There's nothing they can do to bless you, but God can bless you. Fear Him. Think about what He wants you to be doing rather than what other people want you to be doing. I think this is a huge answer to the fear of God. The fifth remedy for fear of witnessing is being convinced of God's providential control over every area of life. So God is not just a proverbial Grand Canyon. He is also personally involved in controlling every area of your life for His glory and for your good. Uh, Verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? See, if God had to plan out when and where every sparrow is going to fall, you can bet He's planned out when you're going to die and when somebody's going to cuss you out, and anything else that's going to occur in your life. If God is in complete control of the sparrows, can you not trust Him to be in complete control of those witnessing situations? See, I think this is probably, even though I'm not going to talk about this very much, this was probably one of the most profound truths to help me with my fear of witnessing. I was scared to death of witnessing when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. And when I became reformed, when I began to understand God's providential control of everything, His predestination of every facet of life, initially that scared me a little bit. But as I began to be comfortable with the fact that this is a good God who loves us, who cares for us, that was such a stabilizing influence in my life because I realized I cannot die one second before God has willed me to die. I cannot get cussed out if it's not God's will for my good that I get cussed out by somebody that I'm witnessing to, right? And uh, every detail began to, to fade away as I began to realize this good God who controls everything, He loves me. He cares for me. He's on my behalf. The sovereignty of God is a wonderful, wonderful answer to fear uh, in witnessing. The sixth remedy Christ gives is the wisdom of God. Verse 30 says, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Think of that. Unless you're bald. Uh, (laughs) Nobody could number all the hairs of your head and know what they are from minute to minute, uh, day to day. And yet God does. Why? Because He's omniscient. He knows 
everything. He knows things others cannot know. And yet, it's fear of the unknown many times that keeps us from witnessing, isn't it? It's fear of the unknown. I don't know what to say good enough. That's okay. God's witness is going to accompany your witness. And uh, I don't know what they're going to do to me. That's okay. God's sovereignly in control of that. And uh, God knows about all of the things that are coming at me. And so it's a trust in the fact God knows everything and His plan cannot be thwarted. He's too wise to let anything be out of His control. And then the final remedy given in this paragraph is that God values each one of you immensely. Verse 29 says that God cares about each individual sparrow. And then verse 31 logically extrapolates by saying, Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So God values you more than the sparrows. He values you more than the Grand Canyon and other aspects of creation. He values you more than He values the results of your witnessing. So you say, why did God call us to witness? Is it because He can't you know, convert the world on His own? He needs our help? No. God could have converted the whole world in a snap of His fingers if He chose to, just like He converted Saul. He didn't need anybody else, you know, witnessing there. God could convert the whole world. Or he could have chosen to use angels, you know, coming in fiery uh, blaze of trail, you know, and telling people, hey, repent or you're going to be cast into hell. He could have converted the whole world that way, but he chose to use us. And why did he do it? You look through the scriptures and you see the only reason really is because he values you. He loves you. He's doing it for your benefit so that you can learn to depend upon Him. You can taste and see that He is good. Uh, You can can, uh, uh, learn how by faith to enter into uh, His being and enter into His grace. He's doing it for your good because He loves you and because He values you. And so in conclusion, next time you become fearful of witnessing, realize that God is too good to let you down, too wise to make mistakes, too powerful to let anything get out of control. He's um, too generous to deny you anything that you need. From start to finish, witnessing really is God's work. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It just so happens. He loves us so much. He wants us to have the privilege of coming alongside of him in this work. He's not asking us to do his responsibility. All he's asking for us is to witness, to put your foot into the Jordan River and watch Him do the rest. Watch Him come through on your behalf. Now, if you couple today's sermon together with next week's sermon, you're going to have all the motivation you need to witness. This week's sermon deals with all of the fears. Next week's sermon deals with the perks that make all of the costs worthwhile. But may God be glorified through your witnessing, and may you be encouraged as you see God's hand at work in your evangelism. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you so much for trusting us to be witnesses. Father, it's just an amazing thing. Uh, We see ourselves as bumbling and making mistakes and so weak, and yet your strength is made perfect in our weakness. I thank you, Father, that uh, it's not just the experts. In fact, uh, uh, most, by far the most of people who come to Christ come through non-experts. But I thank you, Father, for entrusting us with the great privilege of being witnesses to the truth of your Scripture in every area of life. Not manipulating people, 
but speaking the truth into their lives. And I pray that you would give this, your congregation, boldness and courage in doing so by the presence of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.